Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, as always, Kerry Parker. And we actually have a new show for you this week. It's been a little while. We had uh, a double interview, two back-to-back interviews, because it was so long, and I didn't really want to cut any of it out, and I thought it was very important. So uh, we had a double interview, and I may actually do that more, because uh, I know some of the interviews have gotten kind of long lately, so I, as these interviews get longer, I may, if they're long, uh, split them over a couple of weeks so it's a little more digestible. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, but this week we've got a news show, uh, and I've got plenty to catch you up on. I uh, picked some of the top stories in the last few weeks, uh, and we're going to talk about one of the bigger stories, of course, Facebook and the news again. They were, I was going to say caught, maybe they admitted to, I'm not sure exactly how this was revealed, but it was revealed that they had stored hundreds of millions of users' passwords on some of their servers in plain text, completely out in the open with access by potentially thousands of Facebook employees. Uh, I'll talk about that in a minute and why it might might not be quite as bad as it sounds, though it sounds pretty bad. Uh, also talk about a hacker contest that uh, goes on every year called Pwn to Own. You should know the Pwn term since we just recently talked with Troy Hunt of Have I Been Pwned. Uh, and uh, the main thing I want to talk to you about that is not so much what they discovered, because they discover stuff every year, because there's software bugs everywhere, uh, but how they disclose those. And I think that's an important thing to go over. So we'll talk about that. We're going to talk about a, a, a ransomware attack, a recent ransomware attack that affected one of the largest aluminum producers on the planet. Uh, some critical flaws that were found in implanted defibrillators, allowing them to be remotely hacked. That's not good. We'll talk about that. I'll talk very briefly about a really interesting initiative from DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which you may know was the government body behind the creation of the Internet. And finally, I ran into an interesting article on in the Washington Post uh, in response to a, a reader question. And the question was, what happens to all my data when I die? Uh, and that is a very interesting question. Uh, and uh, that's going to lead us into our tip of the week. And it's definitely something you're, you're going to want to listen to. This is really important stuff. And I think a, something that a lot of us don't really think about that we, today's world, absolutely need to be thinking about. So stay tuned for that. That'll be the, the, the tip of the week. All right, first up, Facebook, again, in the news, uh, and again, not for something good. A recent article from Krebs on Security, again, a fantastic uh, security-oriented journalism site. I, I don't even necessarily want to call it a blog. It's really so much more than that, but um, uh, Brian Krebs has done some great work, and this is yet another great story, an exclusive, I believe, uh, where he found, through some context he had at Facebook, that basically it was discovered that Facebook had logged hundreds of millions of user passwords and not encrypted the way they normally should be, but in plain text. In other words, you could read what the passwords were directly. Uh, and it's been sitting on their servers for years, uh, allowing thousands of employees to potentially access this information. It's just, it's just textbook security 101 failure. So anyway, but it, there are, I do want to give some, uh, a mitigating opinion on that, but let me read from this article first from Krebs on security. It says hundreds of millions of Facebook users had their account passwords stored in plain text and searchable by thousands of Facebook employees. In some cases, going back to 2012, Krebs on security has learned Facebook says it's uh, says an ongoing investigation has so far found no indication that employees have abused access to this data. 
Facebook is probing a series of security failures in which employees built applications that logged unencrypted password data for Facebook users and stored it in plain text, and when it says plain text, it means not encrypted, in plain text on internal company servers. That's according to a senior Facebook employee who is familiar with the investigation and who spoke on condition of anonymity because they were not authorized to speak to the press. The Facebook source said the investigation so far indicates between 200 million and 600 million Facebook users may have had their account passwords stored in plain text and searchable by more than 20,000 Facebook employees. The source said Facebook is still trying to determine how many passwords were exposed and for how long, but so far the inquiry has uncovered archives with plain text user passwords dating back to 2012. My Facebook Insider said access logs showed some 2,000 engineers or developers made approximately 9 million internal queries for data elements for data elements that contained plain text user passwords. In an interview with Krebs on Security, Facebook software engineer Scott Renfro said the company wasn't ready to talk about specific numbers, such as the number of Facebook employees who could have accessed the data. Renfro said the company planned to alert affected Facebook users, but that no password resets would be required. Quote, we've not found any cases so far in our investigation where someone was looking intentionally for passwords, nor have we found signs of misuse of this data, Renfro said. In this situation, what we found is these passwords were inadvertently logged, but that there was no actual risk that comes from this. We want to make sure that we're reserving those steps and only force a password change in cases where there's definitely been signs of abuse, unquote. Okay, so this is unquestionably not good. Uh, it is horrible security practice to log passwords in plain text that should never be done now let me explain what i believe is going on here whenever you write software you write logs for that software which is little kind of notes or breadcrumbs that you drop so that when you go to back to debug that software later you can kind of see what was going on so that in and of itself is a very common practice so, you know, in my software, as I'm an engineer, I'm, as I'm writing my code, I want to know when I get to certain points in the software, when I make certain choices in that software, when I receive certain data and act on that data, I will very often print a log to a log file that you as a consumer never see. It's stored either in the cloud, potentially, or it's stored on the device and then later uploaded to the cloud uh, for debugging. And these are, this is basically forensic information that as a software developer, I would use to debug a program. And there will be lots and lots and lots of data in there of which you care nothing about. However, in this case, what appears to be happening is that they had some sort of a situation where when a user maybe entered their password and hit log in, there was a log that said, hey, these are user ABC attempted to log in with this password. And they printed the actual password in the log. And then somehow those logs were collected and uploaded to Facebook servers so that the engineers, should they need to, could go back and, you know, peruse those logs to say, here's what was going on. Oh, here was the problem. Here's how to fix this software or whatever. But it, it's unconscionable that at this day and age that they would be logging anything in plain text. They should have done some audits to look for these sort of things. In fact, and I've been part of companies that have done this where we've gone back and said, hey, are we logging passwords anywhere? And then we go back and we finally, oh, we got to fix that. Uh, and I've actually written tools at other companies that I've been at that have scrubbed, that have you know, I've written programs specifically to go back through all of our logs and to scrub passwords from them. 
um, so that when the time came, if someone was querying these logs to try to debug some sort of information, they would not see those plain text passwords sitting there. Now, also, as Facebook said, more than likely, these are just engineers who are doing their job who are probably not going through these logs to find passwords to do anything malicious. However, <laughs> once, once that data is there, it's possible. Uh, and so it's still a really bad thing. I think they should just tell everybody to change their passwords again. Uh, and of course, if you've got two-factor authentication on, that would help uh, quite a bit as well. And of course you should. Okay, moving on. There are many, many hacker contests that go on every year. DEF CON's got one, some, some, some of the more famous ones, and there are others. Uh, and there's also what we call bug bounty programs, where companies actually pay hackers to find problems in their code and to responsibly disclose them so they can fix them before the, the you know bad guys don't get them and use them for nefarious purposes. Uh, one of the more popular one of these hacker contests is called Pwn to Own, which is part of the Zero Day Initiative, uh, which is, I think, run by Trend Micro, who is a uh, antivirus and security software vendor. Uh, and the way these things kind of work is they basically post bounties and they say, well, if you can find certain bugs that have certain characteristics, we'll pay money for these. If you could find them, it's, it's, it's a contest. Uh, but it's also a, an interesting aspect to the security, um, to software security that I want to highlight. And that is that these companies are basically saying, we want you, we want to find these bugs before someone else does, and we will pay you to do that. And they make it kind of a fun thing, this whole pwn to own thing. They have hacker points that they, that they award along with money. And the, the amount of money varies depending on how critical the bug is or how popular the application is uh, and, and so on. Uh, but the key here is that when these bugs are found, they are contained and fixed as quickly as possible um, so that hopefully no one else finds these bugs and exploits them to do really bad things, which could be happen with a lot of these. And they found uh, this year they found bugs in Safari and Edge and Firefox and even uh, the Tesla car. <laughs> But, you know, that that happens every year. The software is going to have bugs that that should not surprise anybody. And that's not the focus of what I want to talk about here. What I really want to do here is I want to read their policy for how they handle bugs once they have been found. Because I think that's interesting. and I'd like you to understand that. So let me just read this policy straight from uh, the Zero Day Initiative website. It says this policy outlines how the Zero Day Initiative, ZDI, handles responsive vulnerability disclosure to product vendors, trend micro customers, security vendors, and the general public. ZDI will responsibly and promptly notify the appropriate product vendor of a security flaw with their product or service. The first attempt at contact will be through an appropriate uh, contacts or formal mechanisms listed on the vendor website or by sending an email to security at or support at or info at uh, company.com with the pertinent information about the vulnerability. Simultaneous to the vendor notification, protection filters may be distributed to trend micro customers uh, through approved channels. If a vendor fails to acknowledge ZDI initial noti notification within five business days, ZDI will attempt a second formal contact by a direct telephone call to a representative for that vendor. If a vendor fails to respond after an additional five business days following the second notification, ZDI may rely on an intermediary to try to establish contact with the vendor. If ZDI exhausts all possible or exhausts all reasonable methods in order to contact a vendor, then ZDI may issue a public advisory disclosing its findings 15 business days after the initial contact. If the vendor response is received within the time frame outlined above, ZDI will allow the vendor four months or 120 days to address the vulnerability with a security patch or other corrective measure as appropriate. 
At the end of the deadline, if the vendor is not responsive or unable to provide a reasonable statement as to why the vulnerability is not fixed, the ZDI will publish a limited advisory including mitigation in an effort to enable the defensive community to protect the user. We believe that by taking these actions, the vendor will understand the responsibility they have to their customers and will react appropriately. Extensions to the 120-day disclosure timeline will not be granted. If a product vendor is unable to or chooses not to patch a particular security flaw, ZDI will offer to work with that vendor to publicly disclose the flaw with some effective workarounds. In no cases will an acquired vulnerability be kept quiet because a product vendor does not wish to address it. To maintain transparency into our process, we plan on publishing a summary of the communication we've had with the vendor regarding the issue. We hope that this level of insight into our process will allow the community to better understand some of the difficulties vendors have when remediating high-impact bugs. ZDI will make every effort to work with vendors to ensure they understand the technical details and the severity of the reported security flaw. All right, I realized that was a little bit long-winded, um, but I thought it was really important to understand what responsible disclosure really means and what these bug bounty programs uh, are really trying to do here. And the focus is definitely on improving everybody's security. And the way we do that is we pay hackers. We give them incentive to find these bugs. And when they do, uh, just like ZDI here, most of them go through this a very similar uh, disclosure process. They make every effort possible to contact the vendor of the of the broken software product to say, hey, you got a, you got a problem here, uh, and it's a real problem. And here's here's here are the details of that problem. Here's how we found it. Here's how you exploit it. You know, and basically give them as much information as possible so that they can evaluate for themselves uh, how severe this is and how they might fix this problem. And generally speaking, give them four months to fix it, which is that's a pretty healthy amount of time. You know, and as long as the the real details of it are not uh, released, you know, hopefully uh, it will take a while for the other bad guys to figure out what this problem is uh, and exploit it, um, giving the company time to fix it. And, you know, the the flip side of this is, and there are companies that are like this that say, you know, you know what, you know, we're, we're, we're yeah, thanks, but we're not going to do anything. And at that point, the responsible disclosure is to say, hey, everybody, there's a bug here. Here's what's going on. Here's what you can do to try to mitigate that. But they need to let people know uh, so they can either maybe potentially even stop using the product. So anyway, I thought this was interesting just to, to kind of show you how this works and why these bug bounty programs are so important. Um, and actually, we're going to talk a little bit about this next week because Apple, for all the things I like about Apple, has a has really been late to the game with this whole bug bounty program thing. Uh, and we're going to talk about that next week in our interview. So stay tuned for that. All right, next up, there's another ransomware story, and those, of course, are never good. Uh, and this one in particular was um, kind of interesting because it, uh, for, it was, I don't know if it was targeted or not. It kind of seems like it was semi-targeted, but it ended up a, one of the, the main companies that was affected was one of the largest aluminum producers in the world. And Bleeping Computer, uh, who, of course, is always at the forefront of ransomware uh, and ransomware stories, had, had an article about this. Let me just read a quick snippet from that, and then we'll talk about it. One of the largest aluminum producers in the world, Norsk Hydro, has been forced to switch to partial manual operations due to a cyber attack that is allegedly pushing Locker Goga ransomware. Uh, sorry, Locker Goga is just the name. They always give weird names to these things. That's the name of this one. The company announced today that it is the target of an extensive cyber attack that was noticed by the IT staff late Monday. 
which would have been a week ago by the time you hear this, uh, affecting computer systems in most business areas. In public statements today, Norse Kaido did not comment on the nature of the attack, but described a critical situation, uh, a critical situation of an ongoing event, saying that they are, quote, are working to contain and neutralize the attack, unquote, with external help. The company has notified the relevant authorities and uh, informed in an official update on Facebook that it is, quote, switching to manual operations where possible. Goes on here a little bit and uh, talks about the CEO, which I cannot possibly pronounce this guy's name. Um, but he basically said that uh, production losses are minimal uh, and some facilities are running in manual mode, which implies more people working in multiple shifts. And people have not been endangered as a result of the cyber attack, which impacted operations in several business areas around the globe. So um, just quickly, I guess the, the main point of this is that ransomware is still out there. It's still having an effect. Uh, there could be you know, state-sponsored or maybe even corporate-sponsored reasons why you might want to attack your your competitors. I don't know that that's what's going on here. Um, but this was interesting in that, that that it's not just, you know, someone getting their computer infected at home and having to pay $300 in Bitcoin to get their files back. This is a, a whole corporation that was negatively affected by this. And, you know, in this case, it was an aluminum producer, which you know, if their systems were down, then maybe they might have to slow production or, or that kind of thing. And maybe even have to pay the ransomware if, if they, it sounds like that's not the case here. It sounds like they did have backups and were able to restore things without having to pay the ransomware and get their files back and get their data back, which is great. Uh, but it's still a hiccup that they're going to have to, they're going to have to deal with. They're going to have to pay a lot of people and it's going to be a financial impact uh, and may delay orders down the line. So, you know, you know aluminum is used at a lot of places. Laptops, uh, you know, smartphones, and if this is one of the largest producers in the world, this could have ripple effects. I'm not saying that it necessarily will, but my point here is that these sorts of attacks are not just against people. They can often be against corporations, and they can have a big effect on our global economy with so many different interrelated things. All right, now this next story is a lot more concerning. Uh, and if you have a defibrillator installed or you know someone who does, you need to listen carefully to this one. I just read an article from Ars Technica, and it's talking about how critical security flaws have been found in implanted defibrillators, uh, allowing them to be hacked remotely. Uh, so that, of course, is pretty scary, and it, uh, this article is not going to make you feel any better about it. But let me let me get it. Let me read from this article, and then we'll talk about it. Again, from Ars Technica, uh, it says, The federal government on Thursday warned of a serious flaw in Medtronic cardio defibrillators that allow attackers to use radio communications to surreptitiously take full control of the life-saving devices after they are implanted in a patient. Defibrillators are small, surgically implanted devices that deliver electrical shocks to treat potentially fatal, irregular heart rhythms. In recent decades, doctors have increasingly, increasingly used radios to monitor and adjust the devices once they're implanted, rather than using older, costlier, and more invasive means. An array of implanted cardio defibrillators made by Medtronic rely on two types of radio-based consoles for initial setup, periodic maintenance, and regular monitoring. Doctors use the company's CareLink programmer in clinics, while patients use the MyCareLink monitor in homes to regularly ensure the defibrillators are working properly. Researchers from security firm Clever Security discovered that the Connexus radio frequency telemetry protocol, uh, which is Medtronic's proprietary means for the, uh, for the monitors to wirelessly connect to the implanted devices, provides no encryption to secure communications. 
That makes it possible for attackers within radio range to eavesdrop on the communications. Even worse, the protocol has no means of authentication for legitimate devices to prove they are authorized to take control of the implanted devices. That lack of authentication, combined with a raft of other vulnerabilities, makes it possible for attackers within radio range to completely rewrite the defibrillator firmware, which is rarely seen in exploits that affect medical device vulnerabilities. The researchers privately notified Medtronic of the critical vulnerability in January of 2018. On Thursday, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency issued an advisory that for the first time publicly discloses the vulnerability. And this is a direct quote from uh, that advisory. It says, Successful exploitation of these vulnerabilities may allow an attacker with adjacent short-range access to one of the affected products to interfere with, generate, modify, or intercept the radio frequency communication of the Medtronic proprietary Connexus telemetry system, potentially impacting product functionality and or allowing access to the transmitted sensitive data. The result of successful exploitation of these vulnerabilities may include the ability to read and write any valid memory location on the affected implanted device and therefore impact the intended functionality of the device. The advisory rated the severity at 9.3 out of a possible 10 points and said it required low skill to exploit. The notice went on to say that Medtronic has provided additional controls to detect and respond to uh, abuse of the Connexus protocol and continues to develop additional measures that will be deployed once they receive regulatory approval. And then it goes on. It's actually, you know, it says in the meantime, they, you know, advise patients to take the following precautions uh, and I guess I can read it through real quickly. They're not terribly helpful, but I'll read through them. The first one is maintain good physical control over home monitors and programmers. Uh, it says use only home monitors, programmers, and implantable devices obtained directly from your healthcare provider or a Medtronic representative, yada, yada, yada. Uh, don't connect on approved devices. You know, it goes on and on. Basically, there's, there's, not, there's not much you can do here. I mean, you've got your device. You've got your thing implanted in your body. You can't just stay home. Uh, so yeah, they're going to have to fix this and get things out. So I'm actually kind of surprised that they've put out the announcement, like, you know, like going back to the previous story about responsible disclosure, they've known about this since for a, for a year, you know, I would think this would be sort of a recall situation where they would have come quickly, come up with a fix for this and brought patients back in to get these devices upgraded and fixed to, you know, to block this sort of access. So I hope you don't have one of these things or know somebody who does, but you definitely should reach out to your doctor or if you have, I don't know how these things work. I don't know if you have a direct contact to Medtronic as well, but you should probably reach out to them and say, hey, what do I do here? Because I think this is actually pretty scary. So, you know, of course, this you know, this would mean two things. Someone has to maliciously target you, not likely, or for some reason be psychopathic enough just to say, hey, I want to kill somebody. I don't care who. Uh, and then figure out how to do this and then get near you to do it. So, you know, there's that. But, you know, the fact that you have to be, even though it is remote, it still has to be fairly close because it's got to be within radio frequency range, which I, I don't I don't know for sure. My guess is this is probably in tens of feet. But anyway, it's still scary. And the real the real thing here is that this company, there should be some serious sanctions for this. And, it, and hopefully there are regulations put in place so that this will never happen again in the future. Any kind of medical device that has the capability to be even monitored remotely, uh, if there's two-way communications 
you could have a bug in that software that could allow control. So um, we've got to come up with some, some more regulations and penalties with teeth that will drive these companies to make sure that these devices are secure. So one more quick story, uh, and then we'll get into our final story in the tip of the week. And that is that DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which was behind the creation of the Internet uh, and is still around and doing some great stuff, uh, has just announced that they're going to be putting, I think, $10 million into a new open source secure voting system, uh, which, uh, as you know, I've talked about multiple times on the program, uh, our voting systems are really not good. They're all proprietary. They're, uh, the, the vendors like Diebold do not allow third-party inspection of their software. That's just uh, that shouldn't even be illegal. Uh, they, they should that should be required. Anybody providing something so fundamental to our democracy has got to allow third-party inspection of their software. And frankly, this this initiative from DARPA, I would I'm not sure exactly how this is going to work. I, I read the article. It sounds like they're going to develop some really kick butt uh, software and hardware uh, that'll be completely open. Uh, and it sounds like they're what they're really going to do is they're going to design the specification for this and design some basic software uh, and then give it away to other companies to use. Uh, I personally don't think that's the way to go. Cause if you, if you do that, you know, companies like Diebold can pick up that software and use it, but then they'll tweak it and add to it. And you'll never know what they've done to make it proprietary. And then again, we'll be in the same boat we are now. Um, honestly, I, this is critical infrastructure as far as I'm concerned. I, I would think this is totally within the purview of our government to say, okay, you guys, we tried the private way. That sucked. You guys did a horrible job. Uh, we are going to just create these things and 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 you're going to use them. <laughs> so, you know, I know a lot of people don't like the, you know, the quote unquote heavy hand of the government, but, you know, these things are just the profit motive is just not the way to create critical infrastructure and voting systems are arguably the most basic piece of technology in any democracy. Uh, and they've got to be trustworthy um, and they've got to be secure. So anyway, this is a great idea. I hope I'm not sure exactly how this is going to be widely adopted uh, and how long it's going to take. It's probably going to take a while. I seriously doubt this is going to be in, in place anywhere near uh, soon, certainly not for the 2020 elections. Uh, but maybe for the next presidential election after that, we'll see. Anyway, I just want to draw your attention to it. It's a really, it sounds like a really great initiative. So let's cross our fingers that uh, something really good comes out of that, that uh, we can spread everywhere and use all around the country. And finally, let's talk about this article I ran across in the Washington Post, uh, where a user posed a really, a really good question, a very timely question, and one that I don't think a lot of us are asking, and we should be. So uh, his question was, what happens to your iCloud when you die? I'll read the short uh, but informative response from the Washington Post, and then I'll kind of give you my take on this on the tip of the week. All right, it says, death is now a tech problem too. As I recently wrote, and this is, of course, the, the author of the article speaking, as I recently wrote, storing your photos and other digital stuff in the cloud can make tidying up easier. Passing on a photo collection in the cloud has the potential to be less of a burden on errors than a basement full of albums and old papers. But your digital life can also pose challenges for the people you leave behind if you don't plan in advance. The problem? States have very different ways of recognizing online accounts and data. Some treat digital assets as property, like a car or a savings account. Others treat digital assets as private data that shouldn't be accessed by anyone. In general, tech companies won't turn over your data without your express consent, though some make exceptions for errors. 
at least your data won't immediately disappear. If you stop paying for storage or your credit card bounces, Google says it won't delete your stuff, but the account won't be able to upload anything new over the free storage limit. Apple doesn't say how long it holds on to iCloud data if you don't pay, but reserves the right to remove an account within 30 days notice. You could take a few steps now to avoid problems for your family and friends. It starts with talking to a lawyer or estate planner about making stipulations for digital assets in your will. A few tech companies allow you to identify an online heir, which Google calls an inactive account manager and Facebook calls a legacy contact. Apple has no formal process to pre-identify a digital heir, even if, you have a f uh, even if you share a family iCloud account, but Apple support can provide help that may vary by state by the state you live in. Another way to make this easier... Plan a way for loved ones to access your logins and passwords after you're gone. Some password managers offer this as a service. You identify an emergency contact you can op who can open your up-to-date info after waiting a period that you specify. All right, so that was a short response, and that that's that really kind of covers the ground. But um, let's let's expand on this a little bit, and and we'll make this our tip of the week. So, you've got digital stuff. You've got you've got all sorts of stuff that digital exhaust that you create every day uh, that you're probably not thinking about. Uh, that you need to think about in terms of what happens if I'm gone or incapacitated and my family or loved ones or whatever uh, need or even want access to this stuff after I'm gone. So um, let's take this step by step. Uh, first of all, you need to figure out what you've got stored and where uh, and make some really good notes about this. Uh, and for your for beginners, just for your own use, you know, just identify what you have and where it's located. This might include, but is not limited to, Pictures and home movies, uh, any family history information, including things like an Ancestry.com account, digital notes or journals or other documents, tax and other financial documents, social media accounts, email accounts, and of course, passwords and account access information like uh, two-factor authentication. And one nice thing about having a password manager, password manager, and there are many nice things about it, is that if you've got a password manager and you use that to get into all your accounts then that also is a nice one-stop shop of all your accounts. Uh, not only all, you know, what all accounts you have, uh, what websites they are, and uh, what your uh, credentials are for getting into them. So that's really everything in one nice place. Now, the two-factor authentication part is important, and I've pushed two-factor authentication a lot on this show. Uh, so if you have used it, and you certainly should be using it uh, on your critical accounts, that means that not only do they need access to your credentials, which they could find in LastPass or whatever your password manager is, uh, they will need that two-factor authentication device as well, and they will need to access that device. So if they've got an iPhone that is, uses facial ID or fingerprint uh, or a PIN code to get into, that won't help you unless, <laughs> unless you can get into it. So not only do you need to have the physical device, not only does the account for that device need to stay current uh, and stay active, but you need to be able to get into the device. Uh, and also if they're, you know, so if it's a text message based two-factor authentication, that's all you need. You're good. Uh, but if it's a two-factor authentication app, then you also need to be able to get, have the phone, get into the phone, launch that app and get into that app. So there, you know, there's a lot of things you'd have to go through, which is good. I and mean, that's the whole point of the security is that because bad guys can't get through all that. Right. But you need to be able to allow your heirs or whoever you're leaving your stuff to or whoever you want to take care of your stuff, which may, may or may not be your friends and family, uh, to be able to get access to that stuff. All right. So we've figured out, we've now listed out everything we, everything we have. The next step, and this is maybe the hardest one, uh, is you've got to figure out which of that stuff you actually want to pass on and to whom. You may have things that you need to get to your, uh, your spouse 
or whoever is going to take over your accounts when you're either gone or incapacitated. But you also need to take into account uh, historical stuff and, you know, family heirlooms and things like that. Because just just because you don't think it's cool does, doesn't mean someone in your family might not think it's cool. You know, you may just think of it as trash, but they may think of it as treasure. So consider that or maybe talk to them and find out what sorts of things that you'd like them, you know, they would like to make sure that are preserved, um, family history things, personal things. But then you also might want to potentially segregate that information. There might be, you, you know, some information you want to go to certain people and other information you want to go to other people and potentially some information you just might want to be completely deleted um, and not survive your passing. Certainly, maybe very personal stuff, maybe journals and things like that that are, that are useful to you now that you don't want anybody to see after you're gone. So that's kind of the hard part of this is, is once you've identified all this data, kind of figuring out how to split it up in the ways that you can apportion it to the right people uh, and eliminate stuff that you don't want going to anybody. So now if you use LastPass, and I think that's a, a great one to use, and, and you could probably cobble this together with other services and maybe other password managers have similar features, I'm not sure. But LastPass in particular, I know, has an emergency contact feature, which the article alluded to. And it's really great. The way it works is you you designate people that you trust. You There's a list that says people I trust, literally, literally says people I trust. Uh, and you invite them to be on this list. So you send them an email and hopefully they're a LastPass subscriber as well. I don't think they have to be. But it basically tells them, hey, uh, I've designated you as somebody who can access my LastPass account and therefore all the credentials and secret notes and credit cards and everything that I've stored there in an emergency situation. And the way that works is, let's say you're dead or incapacitated and someone has to be able to pay your utility bills or pay your credit card bills or get access to your uh, bank account so they can take money out or, or whatever. Or perhaps access secret notes that have passwords or lock combinations or other things that you've stored away in LastPass. So they request through LastPass access to your account. And in the setup of the account, you have designated how much time to wait to allow them access. So the reason for that would be, you know, let's say that, um, let's say that you're traveling or whatever, and you're worried that someone might think that you're, I don't know, just cause you're incommunicado doesn't mean you're dead. Uh, so that when, you know, someone requests that you could say, Oh no, I, you know, I'm still here. Don't allow this request. Cause I'm not dead. I'll just contact that person directly. Uh, maybe there was a misunderstanding or something like that. So you can actually set a deadline to give you a chance to, uh, say no. Uh, to that emergency contact request. And, you know, you'll have to think about, you know, how long that should be. I think I set mine to a week. Um, I think the default is maybe two days, uh, 48 hours. It's, it's up to you. You can set, you can set that value. Uh, but that gives you the opportunity to say no. And of course you can change this list at any time. You can go through and revoke those privileges uh, anytime you want. Another way to do this, of course, is if you use the LastPass family feature, and it, of course they don't have to be blood relatives to be family, uh, as far as LastPass is concerned, but in LastPass, you can also use the family features uh, to share, like, you know, put a, put together a folder of shared passwords that everybody can, can access if necessary, uh, which will also uh, work on some of these things too. Uh, maybe not the things that are really private that you don't want to give up until you're dead, uh, but certainly maybe, you know, utility bills and banks and things like that you could share with your spouse this way uh, or, or perhaps your kids. So 
Anyway, uh, LastPass has a lot of these features built in, but you can cobble together these same kind of you know, things elsewhere too. You could either put it into like a power of attorney um, uh, document uh, like that as well. You could find other ways to do this. And that actually brings up the next thing, and, and that is everyone should have a will, uh, unless you're you know, dead broke and have no, have no family members to pass anything on to or no spouse. Everybody needs a will. And part of the will is usually, you know, assigning an executor, which is someone who kind of takes care of all your stuff when you're gone and can make decisions for you on your behalf. Uh, you can uh, and should uh, assign a digital executor. And that's not a, I don't think that's a legal term, but that's the term I'm using for it, um, which, and that could be something different from, it could be different from the executor of your, your physical possessions. Somebody you designate after your death to take care of this stuff. And, you know, maybe that's not a family member. Maybe you're a private person. Maybe you've got things you don't want to pass on or that you need to be taken care of in some other way. And so you need to assign somebody to that role that may not be the, the same person that takes care of all your physical belongings. Uh, but you could designate that person in the will, and then they can kind of trigger some of these other things to get at your stuff. Uh, and they'll and you should let them know in some way what to, what you want to have done with your stuff, and you'll need to document this. It doesn't necessarily have to be in your will, but you could point you know there you know let's you know create a document for this and write it up and put it in a sealed envelope and say hey when I die, give it to the lawyer and say give it to this person because this uh, I want them to take care of this stuff. So I know that sounds like a lot of work, uh, and it is. But definitely better take care of it now than, than not take care of it and have your family deal with it. So much of what we do today is not physical. It's, it's in the digital world. And when you die, the, the laws are really not good around this right now. So you can't just assume that because you're named executor in the will that Facebook and Google and Apple and Amazon and, and all these other companies are just say, oh, well, just because you have access to the house, that means you also have access to all these accounts. That Do not take that for granted. Do not assume that is the case. Uh, make sure you've got this expli explicitly set out somewhere. And the easiest way to do it is just to make sure they have access to your accounts. If they've got your credentials, then none of that other stuff should matter. They can just access it as if they were you, um, and no one will be the wiser. So um, that's really the easiest way to do it. But, you know, again, just make sure you've got this thought through and you've, and, and, and you've got it covered and you put something in your will, at the very least, uh, write it all down in some sort of a document that can be accessible after your death. Uh, one more thing I want to note before we uh, wrap this up, this tip is uh, safety deposit boxes are special. They are different. Uh, just because, you know, you have inherited all, all of somebody's stuff and you are their power of attorney and you're, you're the executor of their will, a lot of banks will still not grant you access to the safe deposit box. So that what you have to do there is before you die, whoever you want to entrust to the, uh, the contents of that box to, uh, and you might want to have more than one, uh, you need to go into the bank together with that person and have them put their signature on file as somebody who has access to that account. That's really hard to do. In fact, I think sometimes it might even be impossible to do after you're dead. So, uh, or of course, incapacitated. So that is one thing you might want to do special. It is a physical thing, not a digital thing, but I just want to throw that out there to make sure that you're covering that angle as well. For instance, if you put together this really wonderful document that has all these things you want done with your digital assets upon your death, but you put it in your safety deposit box and they may not be able to get to it. Of course, it should go without saying that you should sit down and talk to your family about this or whoever you're going to name in your will uh, or whoever's going to handle your digital assets. Talk to them about it ahead of time. Make sure they know what your plan is and where this stuff is um, so that they know what to do. that's going to wrap it up this week. So of course you can go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. 
where you can find my blog article on this. Uh, should be out by the time this episode comes out. Uh, in that article, I've got some more information and some other great links to some other sites you might want to look at to give you some more ideas. But otherwise, that's it for the week. Uh, thanks again for listening and tuning in. Uh, tell your family, tell your friends. Next week, we've got a great interview show. we got uh, Jenny Gephardt from the EFF will be on the show. And we're going to talk about their new Fix It Already initiative, which is kind of their top most wanted list of security and privacy things that companies should have already already been doing that are just no-brainers. Uh, and they're calling them out. So we're going to have a really fun interview with her next week. So tune in for that. And that is it. That wraps up our show. Uh, as always, everybody, stay safe out there and don't get caught with your drawbridge down. Bye.